0: You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett.
1: Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show. I'm so excited that you are listening in again this week. Through these radio shows, Linda and I are looking to share some of the insights and information on trending topics that are impacting the world of work and our careers in the 21st century. And to do that, we're inviting experts and thought leaders to be our guests. So by the end of this conversation, we're wanting you to be able to walk away having learned something new and better equipped to future-proof your organization and career. My name is Morag Barrett. I'm the co-author with Dr. Linda Sharkey of the Future Proof Workplace. Linda is currently en route from the West Indies, so I have the pleasure of talking with our guest this week, who is JP Gounder is a vice president and principal analyst with Forrester, a preeminent research and advisory firm. And JP brings to this conversation his expertise in artificial intelligence, technology innovations, and how those are impacting the workforce, employee experience, and just the world of work in general. So, JP, welcome to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, well, for the purpose of our listeners, I could have read your bio, and it is an amazing bio. But perhaps it would help just to hear from you. How did you get to where you are today? And just tell us a little bit about your journey.
2: Well, you're you're very kind. In my case. I've actually been in professional services in one form or another for my entire career. Um, I was originally a wannabe academic at one time, and I studied the social sciences and learned a lot about how institutions and people interact and how we can predict those things, as well as statistics and other skills. Um, but you know, in the late '90s, uh, I found myself in a PhD program. I was still quite young, but I also saw the the dot com boom going on around me, and I'd always been completely intrigued by technology, so I kind of jumped ship uh, and wound up uh, working in management consulting, doing kind of um, mobile and internet stuff. Um, Management consulting was very exciting, but it wasn't super empirical, Um, and I found myself more interested in doing fundamental research, so that led me into the industry analyst path, and I've been at Forrester for over 13 years, um, and I love studying the trends of how how technology and business come together to shape um, our world.
1: So it makes sense. So as you think about the future of work, maybe it just be useful for a time horizon. Just how far into the future are you researching and anticipating the impacts?
2: You know that's a really uh, important question because um, look, let's let's be honest. Prognostication is a very mm-hmm. challenging discipline. Most of long-term, uh, you know, predictions—the uh, more specific they are, in particular—the less likely you are to be correct. Um, you know, I've been making forecasts and predictions for a long time, for most of my career, and I don't always get it right. Um, you mm-hmm. know, one of the things that I decided to do when I started looking at the impact that automation inclusive of AI, robotics, other kinds of software have on the future of jobs and the size and the nature of jobs, um, was to put a time limit on it. And I chose 10 years, which is quite ambitious. In general, Mm -hmm. you don't want to predict something 10 years out. However, this long-term set of trends, many of the others in the field have looked at it over you know, much longer periods. Uh, Frey and Osborne, the Oxford academics who are frequently cited, and who I interviewed during my research process, they look at things and they say, well, in a couple of decades, maybe we will see a certain amount of job loss. Um, so I put a parameter of about 10 years around it, um, and I have some fundamental data that I use to make the predictions. In general, I say don't look more than five years out, but in this instance, we felt like we could make uh, a reasonable uh, assessment of where things were going.
1: That's really useful. Thank you. And it's one of those things where there's no doubt we're in a time of transition. And interesting, a lot of the forecasts really paint a picture of doom and gloom, that there are going to be job losses galore and so on. But your research actually looks on the upside, on the gains and job transformation. So why the rosy glow and what impact does that have on or should have on our view of the future?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, this, is a, this is a tough uh, area to um, talk about with many people because there's all that fear and there's mm-hmm. sort of built-in cultural fear and concern. And we also have to remember, and I think it's really important to think about that when when jobs are lost to automation or to something else, we're talking about real people and that does get obscured. Um, you know, uh, comparatively speaking, I guess there's a rosy angle to my research. What What I have done is not only look at job losses, but also job gains, and as you mentioned, job transformation. So let me explain what those things are. Job loss-wise, there are real job losses. There are um, unfortunate professions where you're going to see people um, losing their jobs and in on mass. Let's look at something like call centers. Now call centers were harmed quite significantly by the business process outsourcing revolution. So we all know um, wherever we live in the world that sometimes when we pick up the phone and call customer service we know that the person is in some other part of the world. This is a labor arbitrage move but you know again folks who were in those professions uh, tended to lose their jobs and they will continue to lose their jobs as a smart technology is able to handle this better than tr- today's IVR. Um, yeah. there are other job categories that you know are going to go away over a period of time. So I said 10 years. We look at something like truck driving. Truck driving is over three and a half million uh, jobs in the United States, and yet by the end of my time period, we're going to start to see um, driverless self-driving trucks that are going to be able to you know traverse the entirety of North America, for example. Um, so job losses are. Real. By 2027, I estimate that about 17% of jobs in today's U.S. economy will be cannibalized by automation technologies, whether that's software or hardware, physical robotics or whatever. Um, so that's a lot. Now, the automation mm-hmm. economy also creates jobs. You know, for every robot, you need a robot repair person. Um, Mm -hmm. I interviewed the Dusseldorf Airport in Germany. Now, this is a very interesting case. This is a literal physical robotics kind of scenario. They have a parking garage where... um, Traditionally, they didn't have any people working there at all. It was just go and park yourself. They implemented Mm -hmm. a system that is completely robotic. And the reason for this is this robotic valet can park the cars really close together and uh, save space and gain about 40% space. So without Mm -hmm. building a new garage, they gained all this space. right? So what's interesting about that, as I said, is at first, you know, before they had the system, they didn't have any employees working in the parking area. But after they did this, of course, they need um, highly skilled robot repair people on call and on premises to fix this. So, in fact, they saw a net gain in jobs uh, simply because of the technology. So literally, you know, every robot needs a robot repair person.
1: Until the robots start. Repairing themselves. But yes, yes, I see. So we're losing in one area, but of course, now we've got a reskilling, upskilling challenge in order to move from being truck driver to robot repair person.
2: Yeah, and that is not insignificant, is it? I mean, you know, interestingly, Germany. Um, is a country that is probably very well equipped to deal with this challenge because they have a strong tradition of vocational and uh, job-oriented education. It's very successful Mm -hmm. at landing people in factories and their strong, you know, high-end manufacturing base is supported by this education system that, um, you know, you could introduce a a lot of uh, new skills into. Uh, In the United States, on the other hand, we're a little bit more hands-off and we say, well, Mm -hmm. get your education Education and then figure it out and train on the job and so I do have concerns about that but you know this this automation economy and it's not all robot repair people it's going to be mm-hmm. STEM, uh, you know the stem jobs you might imagine it's also going to be uh, jobs you might not imagine things like um, you know humans who are going to be managing teams of, of uh, robots uh, and I don't even mean physical ones maybe it's software bots um, there are business processes out there where you can implement smart bots to take on, uh, you know, routine predictable tasks, but those bots can only do about 80% of the job, you know, in the middle of the bell curve. There's always a long tail of exceptions and we're going to need people who are, um, very knowledgeable about the business process and mm-hmm. learn enough about the bots to help them become better. So I estimate that 10% equivalent of today's jobs will be created by 2027. That leaves a net of minus 7%. Now that is very significant, but it's certainly not the 50% that you hear elsewhere. Um, And it means that we have work, you know, in all of the the sort of societies across the globe, but in, you know, my my model is based on the US, we have work to do to to close that gap and give people skills to succeed in that next generation of work.
1: So that's interesting. So what is your prediction about how we fill that skills gap is that education us all going back to school? Is it through the nano degrees, online learning? How do we how do we get that fast enough to bridge yeah, that gap? Mean-
2: it's a problem, right? I mean, we have not had a lot of success in the United States at um, retooling our education system in, you know, in a very long time, right? There've been many different efforts to make, uh, to, to change things, to make things more equitable, um, you know, and many of the jobs that, that are harmed may be in regions where, um, you know, the combination of globalization and uh, automation has hurt already, like the rust belt. So education is ideally a part of the this. Uh, the nanodegrees, the micro um, credentialing that you mentioned, that's another piece as well. We can leverage, you know, connectivity, the internet to uh, hopefully gain access to things that we wouldn't have otherwise had at scale. Uh, but, you know, none of that is going to be altogether enough. Um, what's also interesting, though, is that some jobs remain highly human. And I think there's a couple of cases where that would be the case. One is, um, you may have heard IBM Watson wrote a cookbook. Mm, I had not heard. Yeah, check out the recipes. You're not going to find them that delectable, (laughs) at least on paper. Yeah. Um, and now maybe Watson is a genius in, in the kitchen, and I don't know, but because um, I haven't tried them because they sound really odd. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think you're going to find that creativity is elusive. You know, you can find uh, computers that can uh, compose music. We even see some uh, s- s- companies out there trying to figure out, well, can they write novels? Because there, there are often these sort of triggers that you can map in a novel, and yet none of these are very compelling, right? They're not great art. Another um, way to think about creativity, too, is that creative people may lend their skills to this emerging world. I interviewed a company that was having trouble with a chat bot, um, And, the, you know, these chatbots pop up and you can type questions and answers and get, uh, you know, your problem solved in customer service or something like that. Now, um, the problem was that uh, no one at the company actually knew how to write natural sounding dialogue right? Uh, not the user experience mm-hmm. person, not the, certainly not the programmers. So they went out and they went to um, one of these master of fine arts programs. They, they found some MFA students who were professional novelist wannabes and they hired them to write the dialogue because they said, these people know how to write dialogue. And it really improved the quality of that chatbot. So that's a really interesting case where you know a very traditional creative endeavor, literary stuff is going to give you the capability to help the technology be better?
1: So what I'm hearing is there is still human roles required, the ones that connect the heart, so the creativity, the inspiration, and then it's the logical, uh, repetitive, formulaic roles that certainly in the near term are more at risk.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely the case. I mean, what is new, though, about um, the world of AI is that it's it's also some high-end jobs that are at risk, traditional white-collar jobs. You know, you look at, and I don't think it's on the horizon in, in the next uh, few years, but you look at um, something like uh, medical clinicians. We certainly have Shortages of doctors in various areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, in some areas of medicine, machines are becoming uh, conversant enough and predict- using predictive analytics and image recognition to be able to look at a CT scan and actually do as good a job as a doctor, in some cases only, at mm-hmm. uh, diagnosing some kind of a disease state. Now, interestingly, For uh, some of the oncology programs that have been going on where they've been trying to diagnose things, they've actually found the reverse. They found that um, in some cases, um, these intelligences, like a cognitive system, might be really good at spotting rare cases of cancer where doctors uh, don't have the experience of seeing it and the data can reveal this unusual pattern, but sometimes the doctors are better at still at diagnosing kind of the common cases. Um, so this is a work in progress. It's driven out of data and experience and tweaking the algorithms. Um, but eventually, we're going to get to a place where certain kinds of high-end jobs um, are going to find themselves at risk. Uh, you know, you look at tax preparation um, and yep. you look at the evolution of, you know, um, TurboTax and how much that has sort of cut into the traditional human market. And then you see what h Block is doing, which is to take a different approach, which is to partner with IBM Watson and say, we are going to still have humans who have lots of expertise and can really manage this, but they're going to have at their disposal an AI tool. And sometimes AI will not replace, it will augment human intelligence.
1: So this is a very interesting conversation. And I'm sitting here thinking as somebody who's perhaps got 20 years of a working career left, I'd like to retire and then have a little bit of fun, but also the mother of three teenage boys who are just about embarking on their universal have embarked on their university career. And how do you see those, the challenges of the workforce of 2027 being different for those who are mid-career like me, but also how do we advise the next generation, Generation Z or whatever label we're giving them right now as to which university course, how do they best prepare themselves? So, first right. of all, advice for me, and then advice
2: for them. <laughs> advice for you and me both. I'm I'm mm. probably maybe 25, 30 years away, but I'm you know I'm I'm also thinking about the same thing. I mean, one of the things that's interesting today, unlike in past eras, is you know if you leave university with a particular um, job, you know, set set of credentials, um, you're not necessarily doing anything related to that years later. So it is certainly mm. a process of continual improvement, continual reinvention, continual training, and that's you know, especially in the United States, that really falls to the individual. And that can be a problem, right? Because some folks are just not equipped uh, to be able to do that on their own without some assistance. Um, For people, you know, like us, I mean, I think we need to be cognizant of how um, some of these emerging technologies intersect with the expertise we have and the work we continue to do. Now, I'm in the knowledge business. I generate Mm -hmm. insights to help clients do stuff, uh, make better decisions, uh, adopt technology, make, uh, you know, uh, make their their workforce more effective. Um, but perhaps some of that won't go away. It's it's not easy for cognitive intelligences to be strategic. Um, but maybe there are parts of my job that will be delivered over time in a, in a more, uh, routine fashion. You know, maybe I have a set of insights that I come up with and maybe they're recorded or cataloged by an intelligence and they're distributed to, um, to my clients. So we have, you know, this sort of ongoing, um, and, and let's say, you know, you, were a psychologist, or to take the example of your kids, let's say that Mm -hmm. one of your children is really passionate about psychology, and we say, well, that's not a STEM profession, so maybe you shouldn't do it. Well, look, I mean, that's uh, over—that's an overly um, pessimistic view. Not everyone is going to be in STEM. Not everyone's passionate about uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Not everyone is uh, suited to it. And and healthcare is certainly an area where everyone is going to be needed, but even take something like psychology if you're passionate about it, pursue it, but then try to add a little bit of understanding. And I call this concept, um, I have this concept called RQ. It's robotics quotient. Ooh. It's like IQ or EQ, yeah. you know, yep. what it is, our robotics quotient is a measure of how, um, how effectively a person or a team of people can collaborate with, adapt to, be flexible in the face of, and uh, use these increasingly intelligent systems. Um, So a person with high RQ is conversant with the way machines are impacting the job that they have, and they're able to work with it. So back to my psychology example. Mm, um, Yep. Interestingly, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very you know, effective and powerful tool for helping people with anxiety and depression and addiction and other uh, disorders, is now being delivered over chatbots. Oh. And that is an interesting development in itself. It democratizes it. But if I were a psychology major and I wanted to be a therapist, I might attend a meetup you know, and learn a little bit about, hey, what's up with these chatbots? There's probably a meetup on it. There's a meetup on most of these topics. Um, I might try to experiment a little bit, do a little bit of research, free research, to try to understand how uh, those technologies are starting to impact the the profession of psychology. And then maybe as I established a practice, you know, when I was a, a certified therapist, I might start integrating some of those technologies into my practice. For example, maybe I do live sessions, but I extend that with software that allows my uh, patients, my clients, to uh, extend that experience digitally.
1: So I'm hearing a couple of things. One is breadth of learning, not necessarily a narrow focus, though I want my brain surgeon to have a relatively narrow um, (laughs) perspective, but breadth. But the other thing I hear that's very different in the 21st century from the 20th is that it was learn, learn, work retire it was a very linear process but in the 21st century what i'm hearing is the learning never stops keep learning keep adjusting your game so that you can stay in the game
2: yeah i mean and and I know that's not you know totally original. many people uh talk about this. I'm sure you and Linda talk about this a lot, but it really is imperative um that you um, find ways to acquire new skills either through the job that you have or maybe you don't have a traditional job. Maybe you're a gig economy worker, and you need to find the intersection points between how technology um the evolution of your particular career and education of various sorts can continually improve the skills that you bring to the market. Um, And you may find yourself working for yourself, or you may find yourself working for a company. Hopefully that company invests some in uh, learning and development, but ultimately you're kind of responsible for making sure you, you gain those skills.
1: Okay, well, JP, we're about to go to a break. You're listening to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show with Morag Barrett and our guest this week, JP Gowender of Forrester. And we're talking about the impact of technology, artificial intelligence on the world of work. When we come back, JP, we've talked much about the employee experience. What about from a customer perspective? I'm curious to know how automation will be spread between the obvious in-your-face customer-facing solutions, but also what's the invisible technology creep that you're starting to see happen. But Stay with us and we'll be right back.
0: Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future-Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com.
1: So, JP, I've been loving our conversation. Before break, you were talking about your concept of RQ, robotics quotient, and how that impacts the world of work. But let's move to the outside in. I'm a customer. I'm walking down the street. How's automation going to be spread between the obvious um, in my face uh, changes in how I consume and shop, but also the back end invisible technologies? What are you seeing some of the trends there?
2: Yeah, we're going to see a lot of experimentation over the next few years, and frankly, some of it's going to be quite ineffective. Right? Uh, there's always this period of time when you try some new technologies, and they don't quite go the way that you want. There's a big learning curve, or maybe maybe that technology was the wrong route to take. Um, you know, I can give you some examples. I think you're mm, going to find, first of all, to start out with your your premise. There are going to be these in-your-face technologies, and you're going to see them, whether that is a robot that greets you in a in a physical retail store, of you know a physical robot, mm-hmm. or whether it is a chat bot, whether it is you're asking Alexa to give you increasingly sophisticated solutions, there will be you know direct customer stuff that's going on. There's also a lot, as you implied in your question, on the back end that's less visible. Um, and some of that is, you know, we're going to have the same pluses and minuses. I mean, on the on the customer-facing side, the in-your-face stuff, um, you know, it, it may have technical problems. It may not be the right thing for, for culture. We may not accept it. Um, there are a lot of things that can go wrong on the back end. The same is true with different uh, a different flavor to it. You know, perhaps it doesn't integrate well into our existing infrastructure or something like that. I think you're going to find both are going to be the site of experiments, and it's going to vary by the kind of business you are in. Um, a a vertical like retail is going to experience both of them very significantly. You know, retail is undergoing uh, significant changes. Uh, Certain retailers are very challenged, of course. Others are actually doing better than you might think. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, most retailers are kind of combining their online and offline um, operations so that you can receive, you could, buy something online, pick it up in the store, or you could order mm-hmm. it in the store and have it shipped to you. They're they're trying to make a unified experience, and that means that there's lots of back-end technology like physical robots in warehouses um, that are being tried out, um, AI to optimize certain kinds of routes for delivery and logistics, things that you don't see that, that make a big difference. Um, on the other hand, um, they're also investing in in-store robots to, to actually help you out. Lowe's is a, an innovator in this Space mm-hmm. the Lobot, um, which is still in pilot, but you know is sort of uh, out there in the world, at least in about fifteen stores, um, is able you know to speak multiple languages, and this solves a, a key problem. If you walk into a store and you speak Lao, and no one working there speaks Lao, you can now speak to a robot. Um, but finally, there are these cases where. These things sound good in theory, and they go very wrong. Just this week, there's been uh, some discussion about Whole Foods, and they implemented a new order-to-shelf software system, Mm, which is supposed to, yeah, it's supposed to cut down on some of that waste. You know, where they have stuff that goes bad. But unfortunately, and this is sort of uh, actually an initiative that started before Amazon bought Whole Foods, so it's not an Amazon thing. But unfortunately, it's led to a lot of empty shelves. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, that's what A- I Amazon, gets Amazon the blame. got the
1: credit for the empty shelves in uh, Whole yeah. Foods. But you're right, you you bought yeah. it,
2: you own it. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So you inherit all the issues. But that brings me to the challenges of automation because it's not as easy as buy the widget, plug it in, wire it into your system, and ta da, it works. So mm-hmm. uh, you know how are companies dealing with the challenge of automation and keeping up with that rapid pace? Who's doing it well, and what are some of the practices that can help?
2: well there this is, i mean you're, you're absolutely right we we're in this interesting time where simultaneously um, the pace of uh, adoption and usage of technology is accelerating, but we also then need to recognize that um, for any given initiative there's there's a learning curve there, it's not going to happen overnight, and oftentimes there are some infrastructure prerequisites that need to be accommodated. Um, right now, there's a technology called robotic process automation that's really, really hot. And that's because it sort of solves both of these problems in a way. So let me give you an example of what it does. It's, it's a set of software bots that can take mm-hmm. on digital work from people. Um, now, let, let's say, uh, here's a tangible example most of us could relate to. You call up your credit card company and you say, I'd like to add my spouse to my account. Mm-hmm. And someone answers the phone and you say, I'd like to, answer. now you would think that that would be a really simple query, but for some reason you're on the phone for six to 10 minutes, Right? We've all had this experience where we've called customer service. We think it's the simplest question ever, just, just fix this. And what's happening behind the scenes is that that human worker is actually logging into five or six different uh, computer systems to try to mm. actually move through the process. Right, There's a fraud detection system. There's a uh, credit limit uh, system. There's something mm-hmm. that's going to run a background check on your spouse, etc. So this can take six to 10 minutes using an RPA bot, this robotic process automation, the Software can ping all of those systems in about... 10 seconds. Um, so it actually can execute something without changing the back end at all. It can execute against those things as if it were a super fast human. Um, and then the end result of that is that you actually get your problem solved quickly. So a lot of companies are investing in RPA because it means that they can keep some of that um, existing infrastructure in place, these older software systems that don't talk to one another, but they can hyper speed them up um, You know, because they're using these bots. Um, So we're going to go through a period where there's going to be um, that kind of technology and then there's going to be the more fundamental re-engineering where you think digital first, you think AI first, and that's going to be a journey that takes a decade.
1: So uh, the good news earlier on, you were talking about uh, you're looking 10 years into the future. This is happening right now, but the good news is jobs aren't going away completely. So we're going to have opportunity for humans and machines to collaborate So what sort of teams and organizational structures do you you see are likely to emerge to make that happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, so some of that will, will of course, be quite complex, I'm sure. Um, Let's just look at it from a very simple perspective. We'll look at it from a uh, machine-first perspective, a human-first perspective, and then let's say a human-machine team. Um, the machine-first perspective is very much like what we were just talking about, which is a human is using some kind of automated system as a tool to augment their performance. That RPA, uh, in that assisted instance, the person on the phone, is cutting the time of that conversation on the phone with the customer from six minutes to 30 seconds. So that's that's a win-win-win for customer, for, for employee, and for machine who gets to do some, some, some good work. So that's a machine-first scenario. There will also be machine-first scenarios where there is no human involved, right, where it really takes on most of it, and it's just a kind of some manager or some engineer looks at it somewhere. So it's a spectrum. So then there are these uh, human-first teams. Now, in this case, the human's job doesn't change that much but maybe the human is taking certain tasks off their plate that uh, a machine could take care of for them. Um, We've all had that scenario where we've been emailing back and forth with somebody about uh, scheduling a meeting. You know, I'm free at Tuesday between four and five. You're free on Wednesday between six and seven. um, And we can't really get it to work. So there are companies like x.ai that are taking that off your plate. They can actually just sort of sit in the middle. You email this bot and it'll actually schedule that meeting for you. Um, This doesn't fundamentally change my job, but it takes that task, which is a very boring, repetitive task, off my plate um, and makes me more effective. Finally, there are mixed teams where you could say humans and machines are working together side by side uh, sort of seamlessly. And you find this a lot in industrial contexts. Uh, there's something called a cobot, a collaborative bot, where a person and a robot are working together um, and they're doing things in a very equitable way, but they are still specializing you know, the robot is doing machine-oriented things, and the human is making more decisions. But it's it's 50-50, it's teamwork. But you're going to see a bigger digital divide as well, right? I mean, if if I'm using, you know, Amy Ingram to schedule all my meetings, um, it's going to be hard for you as the recipient of that email uh, to sort of opt out of it. I mean, in that case, hopefully your exposure is limited, but, um, you know, people are going to find that they have to To play with some of these systems. Um, You know, we're also seeing another thing we're seeing is Alexa from Amazon is being embedded in a whole bunch of products. So, for example, like Frigidaire air conditioners or Samsung robot vacuums or, um, you know, other sort of Internet of Things kinds of things. So, in order to control those devices, you have to interact with Alexa. Um, so some of this is going to be forced on people to some extent at some point. But if you want to protect yourself, you know, you have to use some good judgment. Um, sometimes you're, you're not going to want to be the first to sign up. You're going to want to see how things go. But even that's no guarantee. Look at Facebook, right? Many people have various kinds of problems, even though there are a couple billion people using Facebook. So th- this is thorny and, and there's, no, um, there's no magic bullet to protect yourself.
1: No. But I go back to that phrase, the Internet of Things, it was lauded the the next big solution, everything connected to the internet. And then I think, well, do I need my toaster to be connected to the internet? Do I want my vacuum cleaner to have Alexa controlling it? So is it red herring? Do we need an internet of things or is it already here and I just don't realize it?
2: Yeah, I think the answer is probably somewhere in between, right? I mean, <laughs> some of these things – no, because some of these things do on the face of them seem a little bit absurd, right? You know, as you say, a toaster. Now, okay, let's take a toaster. What, what, what could conceivably be useful about that? I think for most of us, a toaster is a pretty disposable thing, but let's say you're a restaurant. And you want to make sure that you always have a certain number of, of – you do a lot of breakfast, let's say. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you always have a certain capacity to produce toast. Maybe by connecting that toaster to the internet, um, it could do predictive maintenance. So it could say, you know, in 30 days, this toaster is likely to break based on other toasters that we've been monitoring. You're going to want to send it out for – or send somebody over to fix it before it breaks. Otherwise, you're going to have a disruption in your service to customers. Right? So there may be some of these cases may be a little bit silly for the home. They may be smarter for uh, a restaurant, for example. Um, but I think you're right. I think that when we think about our, our personal environment, um, you know, we need to think about uh, two dimensions here. One of them is going to be kind of utilitarian. One is going to be a little bit more on the uh, entertainment side. So I may use my Alexa or my Google Home or whatever I, I choose to use to play music or you know um, tell jokes, which is a common thing on these devices, but I may also use it to help me manage the energy consumption in my home. Um, And in an era of global climate change, that may be something very, very responsible to do, um, being able to tweak it and connect it to a nest, for example.
1: Oh, yes, the one that does the heating. So how do we get the human, we're in the middle of a digital transformation, how do we get the human transformation to integrate to run in parallel, to, to keep up.
2: Yeah, and this is going to be a significant issue because, you know, uh, as I said, there's a digital divide that we've known about for a long time. I mean, 15 years ago, it was all about internet access. Uh, poorer or more rural communities didn't have access to the internet at high speeds because there was no infrastructure. You know, they didn't have DSL, or which was common then, or cable coax. Um, and so legislation was required to encourage Uh, these telcos and cable companies to actually wire up some of these rural areas, even though it didn't seem like it was, you know, in the best money-making interest of those companies. We're in an environment that is highly deregulatory, that is hands-off, that isn't necessarily going to lend a hand to um, make sure that the digital divide gets addressed. You know, back to some of your earlier comments about education, that's certainly part of it, but that's been really hard to fix. Um, So I am quite concerned about this digital divide. In fact, you could see the the growth of uh, income inequality is going to have some impact on something we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, what, what can humans do? Well, I think in the future, you're going to find that for most of us, we're going to, uh, you know, increasingly interact with automated entities, whether that's a literal robot or a kiosk or, you know, uh, something like that, whereas the white glove, the very high end, the ultra 0.1% are going to have everything done by people. It'll be the mark of um, you know being wealthy is having a butler and having a, a cook and having people who can um, help you in a very high-end store environment. So you're going to see some very interesting um, gilded, new Gilded Age kinds of uh, impacts, which may not be what we ideally want for society, but that's what I would think may happen.
1: What most excites you as you look into the future?
2: You know, I, I'm excited about uh, large-scale problem solving that actually helps um, more of the people rather than just the few. You know, uh, sort of rather than the the $7,000 refrigerator that's connected to the internet um, that very few people can afford. I'm interested in things like telemedicine or helping people, uh, gain access to healthcare. You know, uh, the folks at Samsung have this thing on S health where you can, um, use your, your smartphone on, on some of their more recent models and you can put your insurance information into the system and you can actually dial up a live doctor, uh, like a Mm -hmm. a real MD. And that person can, um, you know they can actually treat you from afar um, you can get prescriptions they can ask you to sort of take the phone and if you've, you've cut your arm you can you know put the camera over it and then the doctor can look at it that kind of thing I mean that's a pretty cool democratizing technology you still need to have insurance probably which is a limit but it it democratizes so that we all can access um, things that we need when we are on the go uh, so that would be like a personal or, or, or a consumer one uh, in the world of work I mean I'm really Really excited about this idea that we can uh, collaborate with increasingly intelligent entities that can find patterns and insights that we would have missed otherwise, because to be too laborious, and hopefully help us to make better decisions.
1: I like that. JP, we're going to go to our final break before we close out the show. You're listening to the Future Proof Workplace radio show. Stay with us. And we are listening and learning from JP Yao, NERF VP and Principal Analyst with Forrester Research.
0: We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com.
1: Welcome back. So, JP, we've been talking about the impact of technology, artificial intelligence, and all of the exciting things that are going to impact and transform work and careers. When you're talking with leaders, not just those in technology, what's the most common misunderstanding about the impact of AI and technology that you come across?
2: Yeah, I think that there definitely is great... um, misconception around the job loss issue, which is to say, and we talked about this a bit earlier, um, you know, I think people believe that we're heading toward this apocalyptic world rather rapidly. And I think that's a danger because if you're a leader and you have a frame of reference that 50% of jobs are going away, you're going to make bad decisions for your company. You're going to over-automate. You're going to focus on Mm -hmm. cost-cutting instead of customer experience. You're not going to honor employee experience, which is very important. Um, to retain, right? Um, Looking at this through an employee experience lens, you would say, how can I use AI and automation to make my workers more successful and effective? But if you're looking at it from a cannibalization perspective, you're thinking, who can I get rid of and how quickly?
1: Okay, excellent. I'm just looking here, and uh, we've got some questions actually coming in from some of the viewers who are listening in. And uh, it just seems as if it's in the wrong hands, technology in the wrong hands, it's going to lead to bad things. Um, so again, this goes back to how do we protect ourselves? How do we ensure that we are making the right decisions and having a long-term view, not just a short-term view? Right. What's your response there?
2: You know, I think there's a number of things. I mean, um, organizations um, are at the forefront of this. Regulators can't keep up with the innovation that's going on. So I would hope that uh, company leaders would be held responsible for um, making wise choices. Now, we know that there are some limits to that because, uh, you know, for example, you look at the environmental space, if we say voluntarily make sure you're not doing anything bad to the environment, it hasn't worked out so well. So it does mean that collectively, whether that's through um, you know, some laws that we pass or some guidelines or shareholder pressure, I mean, there are a number of different possibilities here. We need to hold people responsible as they employ certain kinds of technologies and and try to create both a culture, but also a set of rules that will help us to all live up to the technology's promise rather than falling into uh, its excesses.
1: You mentioned a phrase earlier on the employee experience. One of our listeners picked up on that phrase and they've just asked, can you explain more about what what employee experience means? Does it mean I have fun at work and I uh, job satisfaction?
2: Uh, yeah well that's certainly part of it you know um, so I mean for many years we've talked about customer experience which is the sum total of how a customer feels about their interaction with a company or a brand that's giving them service employee experience is quite similar you know it's the sum total of how an employee feels about their interaction with their employer are they being supported are they being given fair goals are they um, you know rewarded uh, psychologically you know are they praised when they do do a good job. There are a variety of different things that can uh, feed into employee experience and technology plays a role in shaping that as well. The tools that we are given, um, you know, everyone has probably at some point or another had the experience of maybe having not the best work laptop and, and it's heavy and it it's slow and it, it kind of slows you down. Anything that's going to be a barrier that comes between you and being effective and really thrilled with the work you're doing is, um, you know, unfortunate. So. Uh, As we think about these next generation technologies like AI, we have to be very cognizant of how well people work with them, um, how how the structures of the policies that will help people to be successful using them, because it'll all have an impact on employee experience. And finally, if you're kind of constantly laying people off, guess what? That's not great for the people who are left behind. It impacts uh, employee experience negatively. So, you know, um, the the best way to think about this is happy employees lead to happy customers.
1: Okay. So as we come to the end of the show... What are the key insights or next steps that you want our listeners to take away from this conversation?
2: You know, I'd like them to understand that there are uh, definitely some challenges coming on in the future from automation uh, and job loss, but that there is this entirely secondary effect, which is that the automation economy is going to create opportunities for new jobs we've never thought of before. You know, in 2006, if you'd said to someone, I'm an iOS developer, that mm-hmm. job didn't exist. I mean, I, Apple hadn't created iOS yet until the next year. Um, there will be jobs that are created and it's going to be a little bit more, the the bar, the bar is higher. I mean, the skill bar is a little higher. You're going to have to have high robotics quotient. You're going to have to know how to work with smart software. You're going to have to um, be able to be you know, do the human parts of of a job, which involve strategy and decision-making and empathy. Um, So, you know, it's a brave new world, sure, but there are a lot of opportunities. And um, it's uh, incumbent on all of us um, to maximize our opportunities by continually learning, by taking a tech-forward approach to life, um, and by holding others accountable and making sure that there are ethical, high-integrity, you know, systems that are going on.
1: Excellent. So where can we learn more? How can listeners get in touch with you or continue to learn from the insights you're gaining from your research?
2: Well, I do tweet a lot at, at @jgounder. That's J-G-O-W-N-D-E-R. Um, that's a very easy way to kind of connect with me. I'm more frequent there than I am on LinkedIn, let's say. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. I work for Forrester Research. And, and uh, you know, if you happen to be a client, uh, you certainly could link up with me. Um, and I do spend a lot of time, um, you know, talking to media and talking to other experts like you, Morag, um, to try to get these messages out there as well. So thank you again for having me. Um, this has been a lot of fun.
1: Well, JP, I appreciate your time and the insights that you've shared. I especially like the fact that there is hope in that the jobs are going to continue. There will be new jobs. There will be changing jobs. But if we remain agile, paying attention and learning, we can change our game to stay in the game. So thank you, JP.
2: Thank you, more.
1: So to- Everybody listening, uh, thank you for joining me today and JP on the Future Proof Workplace radio show. Make sure to listen in next week for another engaging conversation where we will continue to share the latest thinking and insights on the impact of work and our careers. Remember, the future of work is not tomorrow. The future of work is today. Are you ready?
0: This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.